0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word, Zephaniah chapter 1. If you're confused about where Zephaniah is... It's the fourth to last book in the Old Testament. So if you start at the end and go back, it's Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, then Zephaniah. So that's where you'll find it. It's uh, one of the shorter minor prophets. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked, and I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. And the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. And those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven. And those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom. And those who have turned back from following the Lord. And those who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Be silent. Before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Then it will come about on the day of the Lord's sacrifices. That I will punish the princes. The king's sons. And all who clothe themselves with foreign garments. And I will punish on that day. All who leap on the temple threshold. Who fill the house of their Lord with violence and deceit. On that day declares the Lord There will be the sound of a cry from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, and a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. For all the people of Canaan will be silenced. All who weigh out silver will be cut off. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. Moreover, their wealth will become plunder and their houses desolate. Yes, they will build houses, but not inhabit them, and plant vineyards, but not drink their wine. This is the word of the Lord. be Be seated. The year is about 650 BC. And Judah is practicing the worst kind of idolatry. The northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen and is a fading memory. She fell to the Assyrians 72 years earlier in 722 BC. Now Judah, the southern kingdom, is ruled by King Manasseh. King Manasseh. And and the idolatry of Judah is simply astonishing. She is a nation that does not resemble her former self when she was under the leadership of men like King David. It, it used to be said by Israel, for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Now Judah is worse than the pagan nations that surround her, thanks to Manasseh. Manasseh reigned a long time in Judah, 55 years. Perhaps that's part of the problem. Here's what became of Judah under his reign. We read about this in Second Kings 21. He, Manasseh, did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done and worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name for he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger. Then he set the carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to his son Solomon, "In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers." if only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. So rampant idolatry more than the nations which surrounded them. that This even after Judah had known God's blessings and the glory of his presence for ages. In many ways, the trajectory of other nations throughout time seemed to be the same. Though not like Judah in her special relationship with the Lord, many nations, people built a country based upon the ideals laid out in the word of God. And those people feared God and honored God. Out of their faith sprang institutions like churches and schools and hospitals and and governments for the blessing of the people and protecting of them against sin and sinfulness. Our nation was like that, founded by those who were persecuted for their faith and desired to live in a land where they could worship Jesus Christ according to the scriptures. We're talking about the 1600s, right, and the and the uh, Christians coming to this nation before the 1800s, when things became official. Our nation was founded on was was a chance for for religious freedom, right? But now, think of our nation that once had even presidents calling for uh, days of fasting and humiliation before Almighty God. Um, our <laughs> Our government no longer acknowledges God and let alone calling for fasts and humiliation before him. Our institutions have drunk deeply of secular humanism. And to make my point very clear, we have sacrificed a generation of our own children and spent their entire wealth for immediate gratification on our own desires. Nations can go from following God to rejecting God to being cursed by God to then being destroyed by God. And Scripture said, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, whose God is Yahweh, right? The people whom He has chosen for His inheritance. And Scripture also says this in Psalm 9, The wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This is true for all nations, right? Our Father in heaven knows those who forget him. He knows it. And Judah, under the reign of Manasseh, forgot their God. Now, fast forward to about the year 630 B.C., about 12 years after Manasseh's death and repentance. You can't, don't forget that Manasseh repented at the end of his life. right? About 12 years after Manasseh's death, Josiah, Manasseh's grandson, is on the throne of Judah. He's 8 years old when he uh, begins to reign. But Scripture says, This about Josiah, he did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father, David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. Name your children, Josiah, right? As you may remember, Josiah did much to bring the nation of Judah back to the Lord. He was a reforming king, right? He did much. When Josiah was 26 years old, so 8 to 26, he had been reigning, how many years is that? 18 Years, 18 years, he had been reigning when they found the book of the law, the Pentateuch, lying hidden in a corner of the temple. Right. It hadn't been read. It was sitting there. It was collecting dust. They found it in the corner. He picks it up, blows the dust off and begins to read it. Right. It had been neglected for decades. And Josiah reads this book and begins his reform of the nation. Doing away with, I mean, doing extreme reforms. He did away with idolatrous priests. He took down the ashram and banished the male cult prostitutes from the temple. He ended the worship of the sun. He removed the high places. He reinstituted the Passover, which hadn't been, they hadn't celebrated the Passover for ages and we might think, because Josiah did all these things, that God was now pleased. But God remembered the sins of Manasseh. And after all of Josiah's reforms, we read this in Second Kings 23. However, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah, Because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. The Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight. As I have removed Israel. And I will cast off Jerusalem. This city which I have chosen. And the temple of which I said my name shall be there. So God says, I'm going to cast them off. In 586. 23 years After the end of Josiah's reign, Jerusalem would be destroyed by the Babylonians. God had cast off Jerusalem for Manasseh's sins. He judged his chosen nation. So, when did Zephaniah prophesy? He prophesied, as it says in the first few chapters, during the reign of Josiah, that reforming king right and and I think it was before the reform started, so there's those eighteen years before they find the book of the law that that Zephaniah is calling out for uh, repentance in the nation of Judah. It's before the law was found in that abandoned corner of the temple, so idolatry was rampant, idolatry was everywhere, um, the worship of God was almost extinct, which it's always more fun, it's always more pleasurable to worship idols than it is to worship the living God, right? So idolatry is rampant. It was um, through the pushing of the prophet Zephaniah, I believe, that Josiah began pressing for reform, pressing for a return to the word of God. And so maybe it immediately preceded them finding that book of the law in the temple being neglected, so keep in mind as we work through Zephaniah that we have a nation given over to wickedness. Having forgotten God, but on the verge of significant reform. But that reform would not save them because the sins of the nations, the nation that preceded Zephaniah's ministry were wholly evil. Zephaniah was raised up by the Lord at a low point in Judah's history. May have been... He may have been encouraged to see reforms that happened under Josiah and the turning of the hearts of the people back to God. But we, we must not, I mean, we must also keep in mind that Judah and Jerusalem would be crushed very shortly, a couple decades down the road. So what of, what of the hope we read of in this book, particularly chapter 3? The book, if we read the whole, you would see changes its character when you get to the third chapter. Well, we'll get there when we get there. But for now, we're in chapter one. Uh, notice how the book begins. The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah. This is the common opening for a book of prophecy, right? These, the words are not from the prophet. The words are from the Lord, and the prophet is called to say them to the powers that be. Prophets are sent from God to announce his will, his judgment, his glory. They are sent by God to give his word. Who was Zephaniah? He was the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. And the name Hezekiah should stand out to you. Is this the Hezekiah who was the king in Judah? And I think it was, yes. So Zephaniah is connected back to royalty which means that he has inside knowledge about the corruption of the ruling class. Right? He's connected to them. Which is, you know, and in Zephaniah's prophecy, it's the ruling class that receives much of the Lord's judgment uh, through his mouth. And, and the content here, one word of preface. It often occurs to me when I debate with soft men. When I debate with soft men, with pastors of today's American culture, that A, there is a loss of the fear of the Lord, and B, no one thinks that the picture of God painted by the prophecies in the Old Testament has any relevance to us. right? But we know from Scripture that all Scripture is profitable. All of it is God-breathed, and it's useful for our training in righteousness, and that is true in all ages. Right? We're told by the Apostle Paul in his letter to Timothy, but we think that because of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the last prophet, that the character of God depicted in the Old Testament prophets is somehow either irrelevant or even defective. Right? Of course, Jesus, the last prophet, did propitiate his father's wrath on the cross. But that does not change the fact that First, God is a consuming fire. And second, there still is a very real judgment to come when every man, woman, and child will stand before God. And the anger of God will be present for those who disobeyed him. Right? And, and not only that, not that God has given his, you know, now that God has given his, his son for the sins of the people, that son, that son who died for the sins of the people to propitiate his father's wrath, that son will tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. We We do not even talk about this today in the church, the wrath of God against sin. The prophets announced this wrath. The prophets announced this wrath. They warned that people must turn from their sins. They announced it to entire nations, to Israel, to Judah, to even pagan nations and cities surrounding um, Israel. Why do we not announce the wrath of God today? Because Because we're idolaters. Because we have an idolatrous view of God. That because of Jesus' ministry bearing the wrath of God, that the wrath of god has somehow ceased it has not it will never cease the wrath of god will never cease right it is god is still angry against sin every day right psalm 7 says god is a righteous judge and a god who has indignation every day indignation And that, dear brothers and sisters, is the only way to make proper sense of Jesus' death for sinners. Right? God stood in between you and an angry God. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Right? And you have a a covenanted interceder for you. Otherwise, God would be very angry with you. He interceded between us, dumb sinners, and His Father, a perfectly righteous judge. Jesus did not change the character of God at all in his death. He paid the penalty for his people that they might have peace with God. He flooded the earth once because of sin. He sent his son because of sin. He has done enough. I mean, he has done enough for you, right? Shall, shall God now take a chill pill? Shall he relent from his fierce anger? I mean, that's what a lot of Christians say. That's what a lot of Christian commentators say. They say now that Christ has died, there really is no hell. Right? There is no reason for hell. But hell is the wrath of God present eternally. Right? And so, so many, many get confused by the death of Christ and over apply it and say that God has now been propitiated toward all. And that is not true. God has been propitiated toward his chosen people. No, God is just and the justifier. He is just and the justifier. Now look at Zephaniah's words then and remember God's indignation towards sin. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. The nations may rage, and scheme, but it is a vain raging. What we know is that the earth is the Lord's. Above all the kings and rulers of the earth is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So though nations may boast that they will bring order, right, that they will bring order to the earth or they will transform the world, it is God's world to do with as He wills. We must understand that very simple point. The world belongs to God and He is the authority above all authorities. Right? He made the world and He may remove all things from the face of the earth. I will remove, says the Lord. And indeed, this is what we see in the rise and fall of nations. At one moment, they boast like our nation boasts of unlimited power. And then the next... The next... Day, the next month, they exist only in history books. Why? Because God removes. God removes. And he does so because nations and mankind sin against him. That's why. He loves holiness. And, and sin rightfully makes God angry and always will. State-sponsored paganism is noticed by God. Verse four and five say, so I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests and those who bow down on the housetops to the host of heaven and those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom and those who have turned back from following the Lord and those who have Not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Now we learn of the particular sins of Judah against God. Though God had lavished his gifts and miracles on Judah and called them to be a light among the nations since the time of Abraham, the priests had led them into the worship of Baal. The people, instead of worshiping God, worshiped the creation the host of heaven. Though they made commitments to the Lord, they also made commitments to Milcom, or this can be translated Moloch. Right? The God of the Amorites, who, you remember, required children to be sacrificed to it. Thanks to Solomon, thanks to Solomon, there had been a shrine to Moloch for ages in Judah. One of his wives required children. A shrine to Moloch. And so he built it. And there it was for ages. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, The detestable idol of Moab. And on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem. And for Moloch the detestable idol. Of the sons of Ammon. And the people simply turned back. From seeking the Lord. Or praying to Yahweh. Right. Judah. Judah was tired of God's standards. Right? And his holiness. And so they threw him off for gods with far lower standards. Right? They, pref- they, they preferred to have gods who, um, that would allow them to have sexual relations how and when they liked. Right? They preferred to have gods that would allow them to kill their children with impunity. Right? They preferred to worship the creation rather than the creator. And that sounds strangely familiar to the day that we live in. Doesn't it? Judah went from following the Lord to following their own desires. And so God warns them by the mouth of Zephaniah that they will be judged for those sins. Verse 7, be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near, for the Lord is prepared to sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Our government officials... Our government officials, whether federal or state or local, constantly boast about their own wisdom and their own importance. They purport to be saviors and they talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk about the ways they will save mankind. Talk, 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 talk. talk, Blathering on about the ways they'll save mankind. The idolatrous priests and rulers of Judah were the same. I imagine they talked and talked and talked when they served Baal, just like those priests chanted before Elijah when Elijah called down fire upon his sacrifice, chanting and beating themselves and cutting themselves. And so the prophet yells, Be silent before the Lord Yahweh. Be silent. The gods of the nations, the false gods, need your frantic chanting and erratic behavior. But the Lord God, Yahweh, demands your silence. Yahweh will not be tricked or hoodwinked or impressed by anything you do. He demands silence. Silence, inaction. That's what he desires before his holiness is inaction. Inaction. And isn't it interesting? All those who came in the presence of God fell down as if dead. They were quiet and immobile. He demands silence. He demands devotion to him. He is not easily impressed. Rather, he is holy, holy, holy. In fact, the false gods require their worshipers to speak and speak and speak and speak. But the God of heaven requires us to be silent so that we may do what? Hear him speak. In other words, shut up and listen to God. We are to be silent so that we may listen to the God who speaks. Right? Judah was not listening. The prophets came with warnings and they were too busy chanting to their false gods to hear God's word. Why listen? Because it says in verse 7, the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is that day when judgment breaks out. Right? There have been many days of the Lord through time, and there will be one final day of the Lord. It's the day when God's forbearance ends and His recompense it comes to a nation for her deeds, or to a man for his deeds, or a woman or a child for their deeds. At the end of the ages, there will be a judgment of every man according to what he has done. Those who have believed in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their sins will be hidden. Hidden from the wrathful Father. Hidden in Jesus Christ. Interestingly enough, Zephaniah's his name means the one whom the Lord hides. Those who have not will have to Chatter. And argue with God about their salvation. They're going to have to talk and talk and talk and talk because they're not going to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They're going to have to make arguments to the Almighty Judge. And He will simply see their uncovered sins and will be happy to damn them to hell. What is the sacrifice that Zephaniah mentions in verse 7? says that the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. I believe he is speaking of the bloodshed that will come from God because of the sins of Judah. That is the sacrifice. The sacrifice will be the sinful people and the guests will be the means. God uses a foreign nation to kill those people. The sacrifice is his people and the guests are the Babylonians. Who will he punish? We learn this in verses 8 through 11. The rulers princes, kings, sons, and all who clothe themselves with foreign garments, right? The royal the royal families always have to be fashionable, and so they're, they're not wearing Israelites and Ju- Judah's garments. They're wearing foreign garments. Uh, the priests, verse 9, those who leap on the temple threshold. A very strange statement there. You think it's, it could be some sort of superstitious activity they had. I don't think it's superstition. I think it speaks to the fact that they did everything they did hastily. They leaped over the threshold. There was, no, there was no slow possession, no thoughtful procession. There was no thoughtfulness in them approaching the temple as they were instructed to do by Moses. They, they were simply entering the temple quickly without any preparation. That certainly was not the proper way to approach the living God. They also brought gifts to their pagan gods that they got uh, through deceit and violence. Three, the whole city would be judged from the fish gate to the second quarter to the hills surrounding Jerusalem to the inhabitants of the mortar. They think that's the market section of Jerusalem. And there will be crying and wailing. And then fourth, all the people of Canaan, those that Israel and Judah were trading with, would be silenced. And then finally, the bankers and moneylenders, those who weigh out silver, calls them, will be cut off. And there's no, more, there's no quicker way to devastate a nation than to destroy its banks and its wealth. So to summarize, the rulers, the priests, the capital city, the surrounding people, and the financial managers, all judged by God via the means of a foreign nation coming upon them. And why? Verse 12 says that God will search Jerusalem with lamps and will find those men who are stagnant in spirit that's what he's seeing in jerusalem stagnancy of spirit i mean that's not even a a sort of a, a zeal in the wrong direction that's just sort of stagnant just sort of not here not there right stagnant in spirit have you ever felt stagnant in spirit do you feel stagnant in spirit today And then that stagnation is defined this way. It says, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. The Lord will not do good or evil. That's stagnancy in spirit. That's a great way to find being stagnant in spirit. The Lord's not going to bless. The Lord's not going to curse. The Lord's not going to do bad. He's not going to do good. Things are going to just, you know, status quo. You know, we got to elect the right president because, you know, God's not going to do good or evil, so you know. He, um, so th- that is stagnancy of spirit to see that to to basically proclaim that God has no sovereign sovereign will. For some we- reason, those who translated our Bibles decided to give us a dynamic equivalence at this point in verse twelve. There is actually a phrase where our version translated. Translates it stagnant in spirit. Literally, it should read, Who are like wine left on its dregs. We're like wine left on its dregs. Here's here's what that means the dregs were the sediment that gathered at the bottom of the vat during fermentation. Wine was often left on the dregs to improve its strength and flavor. However, this process had to be monitored. If you didn't pay attention, if you left it too long on the lees, it's called, the wine would become. Uh, thick and unpalatable. Um, it become, you know, balsamic vinegar. Um, to, to prevent such deterioration, then you would just move it from vat to vat. But if you just left it sitting in a vat, it became worthless, right? Good for nothing. Th- that's the metaphor that's being used for stagnant spirit, being left on the dregs too long. Um, that... Uh, that changing from vat to vat hadn't happened with Jerusalem. They had become spiritually thick and unpalatable. Then, finally, this last phrase I think captures much. Those who are stagnant in spirit have this thought in their heads all the time. This becomes their worldview. The Lord will not do good, good or evil. Now, think about that phrase for a bit. The Lord will not do good or evil, good or bad. The decadent, like... Uh, 21st century Americans, like us, don't doubt God's existence. Um, they doubt his power, right? I mean, George Barna has proven that when he does his, his, his whatever you call them, polls, that almost everybody in America says, yeah, we believe in God. But then you start getting into specifics, and it gets more less and less um, clear, And and it's clear that Americans believe in the existence of God, but they completely doubt his power, right? His effectiveness, that he is there and and he is doing. Um, How, you know, Barna always reports that most people in America say they believe in God, but how many actually believe in a living God who acts? Very few. One commentator put it this way, "They they effectively downgraded the Lord to the level of the idols, which were really incapable of acting in any way at all. You know, God has become an idol. Our notion of God has become an idol. Jeremiah ten five. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, and they cannot speak, speaking of idols, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field they are they, they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. So Jeremiah says of the idols what these guys in Zephaniah are saying of God Almighty, right? That these these idols can't do anything. I mean, that image of a scarecrow in a cucumber field. I think it's always hilarious when you see a scarecrow in a cucumber field and there's a bird sitting right on his head or his, on his arms or covering him. You know, it hasn't been effective to keep the birds out. Um, but that that's, you know... When the people, when people begin thinking that God Almighty, the God who is, is described for us in the Holy Scriptures is simply like a scarecrow in the field. Um, they're saying that he's useless. I guarantee you that when you are stagnant in spirit, that is what you think of God. That is what you think of God. You believe that he's powerless and that you cease to actually and then you cease to actually pray to him. Right, You just stop. He's not going to do good or, or bad. You cease to believe that he watches over you or is even mindful of you and all that you're going, going, going through. And that is what has happened to Judah. And God, though he had chosen this people as his possession, is going to punish them for that stagnation, for that dishonor that they showed to him. And what is the purpose of that punishment? What's the purpose of that punishment? That they might repent and turn toward him, right? That they might cease all their godless chatter and silently receive the word of the living God. Instead, they determined that they could do anything they wanted because God God might see, but he wouldn't do anything good or evil. They would shortly know when judgment came upon them, that they had made a horrible misjudgment. May we not make the same misjudgment ourselves, calling God impotent so that we can live for our sins. Right, Calling God distant, calling God impotent, calling God the doer of neither good nor evil, calling God and reshaping Him as an idol so that we can live for our sins. No, God will judge you. If you live for your sins. Let's pray. Our father we thank you for your word. We thank you for the times that your word cuts us. We need cutting. Even though we think we don't. Father I pray that you would. You would stir us up. To contemplate. How we think of you. And how we think of your. Orientation towards sin. And, Father, then let us connect it to the wrath of God poured out upon our Savior, Jesus, and be truly thankful, truly thankful, perhaps for the first time, for the forgiveness of sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.